23, as we continue our journey through Matthew. So I'll just go ahead to Matthew chapter 23. For the whole three years of Jesus' public ministry, he's been dealing with the Pharisees. They have been challenging him, and he has been responding. And then in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus um, finally sort of went on the offensive and challenged them on their hypocrisy. And in the passage we're going to read today in Matthew chapter 23, he is no longer speaking directly to the Pharisees and the scribes, but instead he's speaking to his disciples and the people who are listening, and he's talking about the Pharisees and the scribes. Um, And again, as I mentioned, Jesus had warned the Pharisees about hypocrisy all along through all of this. But I also think as we go look at it, his words show a little bit of compassionate expression of grief for the people as well as for the leaders, for the spiritual deadness of the leaders of the nation of Israel. Um, So it's not just a condemnation as much as I think it's also an acknowledgement of grief. And as you'll see in a couple of weeks when we get out of Matthew chapter 23, um, you see him grieving over the city of Jerusalem. Uh, So again, I think that some of these words may show his spiritual hope for the Pharisees. Because even though the Pharisees have been constantly against him, we'll see in Acts, or you'll see in Acts, that some of the Pharisees came to him. We even have Pharisees coming to Jesus privately to ask him questions. And at the end of Matthew chapter 22, we saw one of the Pharisees, one of the young lawyers, come to Jesus and talk to him. And he says, you aren't far from the kingdom. So even though he's hitting them with hard words, they're hard words for their benefit. And for those who were willing to listen, they responded. And I don't think it's much different today. Jesus' words can still be hard or sound hard because it goes directly against maybe the things that we want. But he always gives those words, not just because he wants to give some kind of pious platitude, that's always for our benefit. Um, So again, these verses remind us that Jesus will always tell the truth, even when it hurts, but it's for our benefit. So go ahead and read Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12.
during the Vietnam War, <clears throat> there was a spike in seminaries as far as students going to seminary. <clears throat> it was a significant spike. And the reason why is because it was advantageous for a person who did not want to go into the military to go to seminary because you could get a draft deferment. So when they would have the draft, seminaries all of a sudden had this increase in um, students. Now, the interesting thing is that they weren't going because they felt called by God. They were going to avoid being drafted. And when I was at Christ Church of Oakbrook, there were people that were coming to church, and I would sit down and just talk to them and hear about their journey, and they'd say, well, you know, I'm here because my boss goes here. Or I'm here because there's a lot of connections here. Um, I'm here because I know that a lot of business is accomplished on the golf course with other, you know, members of Christ Church of Oprah. And the reality is, if people think that religion is advantageous to their life, to their thoughts, or... Um, there will be some people who will show up to fake it because now this benefits me. So when you take a look at some of the things that happened in the church after the 60s, it was because we had a whole bunch of people that never felt called by God to go into the ministry that went into the ministry to avoid something else. And we're running from something, not running to something. And so these same people will attempt to look spiritual, to look religious, without really actually being religious, without actually being changed from the, from the inside out, uh, with their, from the heart. Those are the ones that I've always called the inside outsiders. They're inside the church, but they're outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So they don't look any different than everybody else, but... Their lives, aren't, their lives aren't consistent with what the scripture says. And so this is exactly what Jesus is speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees when he's speaking to the crowd and to disciples in this passage, that they are saying one thing, but they're not doing it. Their heart isn't there. And Jesus is, be reminded, speaking to a very religious people. The people of Israel at that time were not secularized. They were the very polar opposite of our culture. Religion was of high importance in their culture. And religion has lost its importance in our culture. So these were religiously committed people. It was a, it was a part of who they were, what they did. It permeated every aspect of their experience. But the spiritual leaders did not reflect the holiness which they professed. They did not, uh, so Jesus speaks against their lifestyle. And as you look at these verses, we see in verses 1 through 4, Jesus diagnosing the problem of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's the problem of religious hypocrisy. Once again, it's that same thing. But conversely, he teaches that biblical Christianity, fully devoted followers of Christ, should be a people of integrity. 
not hypocrisy. So he's speaking to the people in Jerusalem. He's speaking to his disciples, but he is speaking about the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes, again, were the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees, they were the strictest religious sect of the day. So you think of who is the most legalistic or fundamentalist or the strongest in their behavior or what they proclaim, and this would have been the Pharisees. Um, so Jesus is speaking about them because he knows that the, the behavior, the sin, the problem of the scribes and the Pharisees is a human problem. It doesn't just happen to them. It's a human problem that affects everyone. So he's saying, this is what they do, and then we'll come later in the book of uh, chapter 23, where you'll have these seven woes that he talks about, and he's speaking to his own disciples. You know, saying, these are the dangers that people get into. And later, even in here, you'll see that what Jesus says here is warranted because he's warning the disciples, and then at the end of all of it, you see the disciples falling into the very same trap that he was warning them to. So in verse 3, so do and observe whatever they tell you. I love that verse. So do and observe whatever they tell you but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. I find it, and I'm still processing this and reflecting this. He's saying, these people are hypocrites. They're not living what they're, what they're professing. But what they're telling you is true. So don't worry about their behavior. Worry about the truth that they're telling you. Because if they're telling you truth from, from the book of Moses, if they're telling you whatever is true, don't discard the truth because they're not living it. That's the opposite of what's going on today. A Christian leader will be that's sharing something and then they fail and everybody says everything they've ever done is false. No. If it's from the scripture, if it's true, it's true. Whether they live it, that's what has to be figured out. But it doesn't take away the fact that God's word is still God's word and it's true. And we have a tendency to follow the behavior instead of following the truth. And so <clears throat> I just sort of thought that was interesting. So do and observe what they tell you, but don't do what they do. Which every parent has said the same thing. Do what I tell you. Don't do, you know, do what I say. Don't do what I do. You know. Um, so Jesus is making a very distinct criticism of the scribes of Pharisees. And he's very careful enough to say, look, Many of the things that these people are saying is true because it comes from the scripture. It's true. So if it's true, listen to them. And not only listen to them, obey it. Follow those things. But then he goes on to say, if it's not, 
If their behavior, don't copy the behavior. Uh, because they talk like they're living it, but Jesus says they aren't. And again, at the end of verse 3, they say things and do not do them. They were inconsistent. They were not conscientious in practicing what they professed. Now again, in the days of Jesus, the Pharisees would have been thought of as the most conservative, most Bible-believing, most holy, most faithful people around. They would have been esteemed in the eyes of the people. To talk badly about them would have been unheard of. You just didn't sit around at a table and say, you know what, those Pharisees, they're, they're, they're goofy. That would have been unheard of. Um, now, we look at it because we've had 2,000 years of sermons of telling us how bad the Pharisees are, that they wear black hats, and so they're never the good guys, and so we never root for the Pharisees. But for them, they, they, these were their religious leaders. So you think about all the religious leaders. It'd be like somebody coming up and talking bad about Billy Graham. I mean, really? That's, that's how offensive it would have been to the people to hear somebody talk bad about the Pharisees. And again, sometimes we think that their problem was that they were too legalistic about the law. Jesus never talked about that. It's not that they were too legal. He said, I came to fulfill the law. And he says, you're right, this is what the law says, and this is how we fulfill it, and this is how it gets fulfilled in love, and this is how it gets fulfilled in grace. He's saying, the problem is, you proclaim it, but you don't live it. You don't live it. Uh, in other words, they could be so legalistic when they were telling you how to live. But they were very adept in finding loopholes for themselves and their friends when it was convenient. I find the same thing happening today. Uh, sometimes in my own life, but sometimes I will hear somebody who will speak very, I was with a group of guys, and one of the guys was just, just hammering home this legalistic point. And I'm watching him legal, you know, do it, and then two minutes later, I caught him doing something completely the opposite of what he was saying. I go, just help me. He goes, what? I go, how can you say this here and be so inconsistent over here? I don't understand that. And, it's, and he says, well, it's because. And so they, he found himself a loophole so that he didn't have to be obedient. He didn't have to, you know, do what he said he, everybody else had to do. He was exempt. And that's what happens all the time um, with people. The way Eugene Peterson put it in the message he said, they talk a good line, and they don't live it. They don't take it into their hearts and live it out in their behavior. It's all spit and polished veneer. Instead of giving you God's law as food and drink by which you can banquet on God, they package it in bundles of rules, loading you down like pack animals. They seem to take pleasure in watching you stagger under these loads and wouldn't think of lifting a finger to help. Um... So Jesus doesn't accuse them of being too strict, just hypocritical. 
And Jesus, again, is respectful of their authority um, and is respectful of their teaching as long as it conforms to the Word of God. But he is critical of their lives. And folks, this is something that we ourselves must guard against. It's easy to look at somebody else's life or take a look and say, well, this is what God says or this is what needs to be done or this is what needs to be done and then not do it in our own lives uh, or to find the loopholes in our own lives. Um, and it's not saying that we're perfect. It's saying when we're not, we acknowledge it. This is what God's word says about prayer. But this is what God's word says about fasting. This is what God's word says about this. And that those are all good things. But then to be able to say, and you know, I struggle with that. I don't, I don't do a daily devotional like I would like to. I don't, I don't love my wife the way I need to. I don't, you know, that we acknowledge that here's the standard, here's where we are, instead of saying, here's the standard, and folks, I'm living that standard, but at home, I'm living a completely different way. That's the difference between the hypocrisy. And integrity requires that our conduct is an expression of who we really are. It's, a cons it's consistent with our profession of faith. Uh, Robert Murray McShane said, it's the mark of the hypocrite to be Christian everywhere but home. Oh yeah, everything looks good when I'm out there, but as soon as I'm at home, all, all bets are off. I can live any way I want. Um, that is to be looking like a Christian in public where you can be seen, yet in those private areas, we live as if, we're not, we, live as if we really don't believe in the things that we profess. So again, Jesus is warning against religious hypocrisy. He is calling his disciples not to live a charade. And then in verses 5, five through 7, he says that basically the problem of hypocrisy was derived from a desire to please men. Again, from Eugene Peters, uh, Peterson's The Message. Their lives are perpetual fashion shows. Embroidered prayer shawls one day and flowery prayers the next. They love to sit at the head table at church dinners, basking in the most prominent positions, prevent, uh, preening in the radiance of public flattery, receiving honorary degrees and getting called doctor and reverend. Um, and it all comes from the need to please others or the need to be affirmed by others. Every one of us has a center. Every one of us has a center. And all of our life decisions are really based on that center. And that center could be any number of things. But whenever it's not Christ, our life will be defined by that center and how people respond to us out of that center. So if our family is our center and we, we only decisions we make are based on what the family wants us to do, or if money is our center and the only decision we make is how it's going to benefit us financially, then whatever happens affects that. But when Christ is the center, when Christ is the center, if somebody doesn't like you, it doesn't matter. 
you are able to proclaim truth, and if they reject it, it no longer matters because you're not basing your identity on them. You're basing your identity on who you are in Christ. And that's why these religious hypocrites were basing their, their identity on other people's response to them. But when they could say, no, this is Christ. And that's what he's calling us to. Don't base your need for affirmation on everybody else. Because they wear these uh, philatrics on their, their forehead and on their arm when they would go pray so that everybody knew that they were praying. And inside these little boxes, they would have scripture from Deuteronomy so they could memorize the law and just continue to proclaim it. And then they had tassels. And the law, they said you have to wear tassels. And not only were they supposed to wear tassels to set, separate them from other tribes or other people, these, they said, well, you know what? If I'm supposed to have a tassel, my tassel is going to be longer to, than yours. So I'm going to go to the tailor and say, hey, would you make my tassel a little bit longer than theirs? And then pretty soon, that's, you know, whoever had the longest tassels, you know, that was the holy person. And it was all done. And they would want to be at the place of honor. You know, or have the, the you know, at the banquet. Uh, be, the, be the seat of honor. And those, those types of things, they just hungered for the public acclaim. And that's a danger of every single pastor I know. That whenever you are teaching, whenever you are presenting, whenever you are, you know, standing in front of a group of people, whether it be performing, whether it be speaking, there's something in you that wants people, you want people to come up and say, hey, that was really good. That really touched my life. I can remember asking, one person came up to me and said that, you know, that really, really touched my life. And I said, what part of it? Well, I don't really remember. But they needed to, they needed to be known that I'm going to compliment you. Now, I want to tell you something that was really, really, really uncomfortable for me this last week. Out for dinner with some friends of ours that I went to high school with. And one of them, during dinner, said, Andy, you saved me. And he wasn't talking about me leading him to Christ. He had gone through a divorce. He went through divorce recovery. He learned things that he had never learned before, and it changed his life. But it had nothing to do with Christ. It just had to do with, I gave him some tools. And for him to say, you saved me, and to get that kind of accolade just made me feel miserable because I didn't know how to respond to something that was so untrue. Because bottom line, he may know how to communicate with a person better now, but his eternity hasn't changed. And that's really the most important thing. So I'm getting this accolade, and it's a false accolade. I mean, it's a nice accolade, but it's a false accolade. It means nothing for eternity. Um, but yet there's danger in ministers, teachers, performers of liking that attention. And Jesus is warning against that. Um, you know, 
you don't seek that, don't look for it. And so Jesus says, don't do that in your relationship with God. Don't care more about what other think, other people think about you than you care about what God thinks of you. Take yourselves less seriously and God more seriously. And then in verse 8 and 9, he goes on to give a warning to his disciples. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructor, for you have one instructor in Christ. And basically what he's saying, this is a heart issue. Don't desire to be exalted. Don't desire to be exalted. And again, look at the words. Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher. Do not call anyone on earth your father, because one is your father. Now, Jesus is making this sweeping command, and sometimes we forget that even Paul said, I am Timothy's spiritual father. So he's not saying you can't use that term when it's appropriate, but that you don't exalt yourself to that position. And that becomes a heart attitude. So he's not saying we can't use the terminology. If a person's your dad, go ahead and call him father. If a person's a pastor, go ahead and call him your pastor. But it's the sense that it's got to be the heart attitude. Um, so he's focusing against religious leaders, but not just religious leaders, folks. It's for all of us. Whenever we want to be exalted above where Christ should be. And that's just as a, a danger. So the best minister is one who gets out of the way. Who preaches the word of God so that you can come into a relationship with God and then just sort of gets out of the way. You don't have to go through them to be a mediator, to encounter God. You don't have to go through them to have them do anything. You have a right relationship with Jesus Christ and the minister can step back and pray for you, guide and direct, but not be the one who says, it's all centered on me. When I was at Oral Roberts University, there was a movement there that people were selling everything and giving it to the minister that he would then distribute it among the people that he was in charge of this community and all decisions, whether, you know, what, what you had for dinner was going to be decided by this person. And that all spiritual growth, I mean, it, was, it got sick um, because of, everything had to go through that person. And these are the exact same things that Jesus is warning against. So it's true, and it's easy for religious leaders to look spiritual, to look religious, to look like they have more of a relationship with God than they do, simply because they say or speak from the pulpit or from a platform. And of course, then he directly again says, don't you seek the praise of men more than you seek the well done, my good and faithful servant that you will hear from God. That's what we need to seek. Well done, good and faithful servant. Finally, Jesus turns this whole point around and he says in verse 11 and 12 and looks at it from a different perspective. 
The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And again, he teaches that true disciples have their goal is to serve. Service to God, service to one another is our goal. A desire to serve others is a great weapon, a huge weapon against hypocrisy. And it's a huge weapon against pride, spiritual pride. Um, and so Jesus closes this passage of verse 3 by quoting again a, a, a proverb, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. What he means by this is that those who attempt to advance themselves in the ministry will be brought low. But those who seek the welfare of others will always be lifted up. That's what I've said in the same, same vein. Whatever you do to get love, you will resent. Whatever you do out of love will always bring fulfillment. You cannot do something out of love and feel resentment because the act of love is the reward. I did a loving thing because I'm a loving person and so I feel good about what I did. When you find yourself doing something loving for another person and you begin to resent it, it's not the other person's problem. It's your problem because you're doing it for the wrong motive. And so whenever I find myself resenting Gwen, it's never her problem. <laughs> it really isn't. I'm expecting a response that I'm not getting. And it's not a realistic response because I'm doing something. I said, well, I did this for you. How come you're not doing this for me? She goes, because God didn't tell me to do that. God told you to love me. So you deal with it. Um, I mean, that's basically, I mean, some of that is humor, but that's exactly what's going on. And so he's saying, if you're going to exalt yourself, you're going to be brought low. Basically, what he's saying is that we should all be focusing on downward mobility instead of upward mobility when it comes to our spiritual life. That we say, no, I'm not here to be served, I'm here to serve. I'm here to humble myself in service of others rather than me getting the place of honor and having people serve me. That's just how God set it up. So remember I said that this lesson was personal the disciples, it was very much so. He's speaking to the disciples, he's giving them this harsh word and, and later you will see he gives them seven woes, you know, that he's talking about. And then a few hours later, they're walking to Jerusalem and they start to have an argument. And Luke tells us what they're arguing about. He says, hey, Jesus, who's going to be the greatest among us? He just gives us. And folks... That reminds me so much of my life. I can know that God is telling me this and I'm, going to, I'm ready for it and I'm going to be so forgiving, I'm going to be so loving, I'm going to be so compassionate, I'm going to be so caring, 
And I'll walk out of here and five minutes later, I'll be upset with the Cubs and then my life, my day is shot, you know. Or something can set me off so that I don't do that which I know God wants me to do. We need these messages and we need reminders on a daily basis to say, what does it mean to truly be a servant of God? Jesus' message was pertinent. It was just as pertinent for us as it was for when he first, first spoke it. He's warning us about the hypocrite that we can be when a heart doesn't belong to him. So how can that change take place? It doesn't happen by our, on our own. It's only by the work of the Holy Spirit. Only by the grace of the Holy, Holy Spirit can we truly serve others with integrity and humility. And may God make that a reality of our heart. That if a person really has never fully acknowledged and surrendered their life to Christ, don't wait. Don't wait. And don't do it because of the moral questions. Do it because God brings a joy, a peace, a guidance, an understanding, a love that the world can't provide. And he makes our lives consistent. And when they're not consistent, we have a tool. We have uh, the Holy Spirit. We have the Word that can help us live consistent lives will change our heart so that our behavior is consistent with what our words are. Father, we just want to be a people characterized by, by you, by integrity, by what it means to truly live a surrendered life. And Lord, we don't have the power in us to produce that kind of quality of heart. But we know that if we humbly come before you, and we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, we can become people who really do follow and love Jesus Christ and love God and are able to make Jesus the Lord of our life and make his, your word be our guide and make your spirit, your, allow your spirit to, co to continue to transform us into Christ-like people. And so, Lord, just move in our hearts and our lives now. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.